So back when I used to officiate at weddings, uh, the, the couple that was going to be married would often ask me, part of the rehearsal process, if, if I would say, after I pronounced them husband and wife, you know, that's the, the last thing kind of the minister says, I pronounce you husband and wife, they would always ask me, say, would, would, would you now say, like, you may now kiss the bride? And I always refused. I still do. I think, I don't know what the other pastors do. I think they should refuse. It's not because we're against public kissing. It's totally fine. It's that at that point in the service, you're married, and you do not need my permission to kiss your wife. And if you think you do, then you don't understand what just happened. (laughs) Now, that's a kind of dramatic moment where that, that sort of transition happens, but life is full of these kinds of transitions, right? Uh... In an instant, our, our identity is changed, and with that change of identity, like new, new privileges come along, and, and, and we're, we're, we're told to like live now as if, as if you're this new thing, when only like a few moments ago you weren't that thing, and it happens in small ways. You get a driver's license, and before you weren't allowed to drive this two-ton vehicle, and now you are at crazy speeds. Go forth and drive. Uh, you, you know, you, you, get a, you get a new job. And all of a sudden, you're expected, hey, like, do the work. You you were unemployed, and now you're employed, and, like, go out and and do it. You become a citizen if you've immigrated. Or or the one that was the craziest in in my mind was you, you have a child, and they actually let you, after a few days, put it in your car and drive it home, and they do not send anybody with you, and there is no instruction manual, and you're just supposed to, like, now be a parent. Crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We, 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 We have these these, these changes in identity, and it can feel so strange in the moment, almost like we're, like, like we're stealing a base, like, like people are letting us get away with something. But now, can you imagine how much worse it would be if going through that change of identity, you didn't take it up? I mean, an employee who's six months into the job is still hesitant to take ownership of the job they've been given deeply annoying to everyone they work with. A husband who needs permission to kiss his wife? Pathetic. A new mom who's too timid to care for her new baby? Ooh, criminal, potentially. Right, a change in identity and sometimes it happens in a moment, not only brings a new status and new privileges, so often it brings new responsibilities. Now, this morning, we are continuing with our series in 1 Corinthians, a, a series I've entitled United We Stand. And Oh, that's interesting. And the, the title of this morning's sermon is United We Stand as Saints. Christians are people who have been given a new identity. We are saints. It's not that we're going to become saints someday. I'll talk about this in a minute. We are saints. 
And that identity brings with it, of course, privileges, but also some new and, frankly, very weighty responsibilities. And so the question that I want you to be thinking about this morning is, how should saints live? How should saints live? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is found on page 1014, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provided in the pews and chairs, 1014. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're just going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. And let me just remind you, as we're turning there, that, that we're in what I'm calling our Advent section of 1 Corinthians. Right? We talked about church discipline last week. This week, we're talking about suing people. Next week, we're talking about prostitutes. Obviously, it's the Advent section of... <laughs> 1 Corinthians. But, but, I think, but I really do think this is right because it's the Advent section because I think the church is, is meant to be God's Advent carol to the world. Our lives are meant to sing out to the watching world, the gospel is true. And if you want to know it's true, all you have to do is look at us. Not because we're perfect, because we're different. And we're different in a way that makes it very clear the gospel is true. Now, last week, we saw that that meant negatively. If the gospel is true, we're not going to tolerate unrepentant sin because we've been made a new and holy people. Well, well, this week, Paul is going to press that argument further, but he's going to do it, in a way, positively. He's going to make it very clear, and this is the main point that I want you to walk away with, saints should live like they're saved. Saints should live like they are saved. I want you to think about what that looks like in that passage that we're looking at this morning, but I want you to think about what that looks like for you, for for us as a church. What would it look like for us to really live like we're saved? Well, well, Paul uh, is going to point out two things in in our passage this morning. Two two ways in which it's really clear that saints live like they're saved. And the first one is that saints demonstrate the wisdom of the gospel. Saints demonstrate the wisdom of the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers. Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. All right, we're going to stop right there. So just to remind you, you last week, Paul rebuked them in in chapter 5, which we looked at last week. Paul rebuked them for tolerating 
sexual immorality, unrepentant sin. And the reason he rebuked them is to do that was, was, was to fail to live as they are. They, they are already a holy people. And Paul said, you should be living that way. Well, well now uh, it's clear Paul isn't finished. He had heard this report that there was sexual immorality, and apparently he's heard another report. And, and he rebukes them for what he's heard. Somebody in the church is suing somebody else in the church in a secular court. Now, now I want to be really clear here. In this language, you take it to court. Paul's using a very specific word, kind of some technical terminology. Paul is not talking about a criminal case. He's not talking about the kind of case where it's the state against the defendant. He's talking about civil suits where it's one defendant, a, a, a plaintiff against a, a defendant, two different litigants, civil disputes. In our context, we, we, we might think about, I don't know, like small claims court or, or a contract dispute. Uh, things like uh, a, lot of, a lot of what goes on in terms of divorce or estate issues would fall under this category. This is the kind of stuff that he's talking about. When one person, not the state, when one private individual takes another private individual to court. And Paul's not happy about it. Uh, the, the, first, the first word actually uh, in, is, is literally like, how dare you? How, how dare you do this? It speaks to the, the scandal Paul feels. But what's striking, I think, when you, when you read this closely, is that, that Paul's concern is not, first and foremost, that there's a dispute or a problem in the church. Of course, there are going to be disputes in the church. Of course, there are going to be problems in the church. Christians have been saved, but, they're, but they still sin. Uh, Christians have been saved, but we still get things wrong. We make mistakes. We might even make mistakes that hurt somebody else. We deliberately do things wrong. We, we actually sin. The, the, the issue isn't sin in the church. To, to live on this side of glory is to live with the ongoing presence of sin. No, no, as we thought about last week, the problem isn't sin in the church. The problem is unrepentant sin, sin that's not being dealt with correctly. Now, now, Paul's outrage here is over how the Corinthians are going about settling their disputes with one another. It, he, he starts with the, the, the outrage over this one situation. One guy's taking another guy to court, but he, but he quickly broadens it to talk to the whole church. They are using these secular courts and, and unbelieving judges, what he calls the unrighteous, instead of resolving it before the saints. Who are the saints? Well, we, we know from chapter 1, verse 2, it's, it's the church. He, he greets them at the very beginning as those who are called as saints. Now, he's not using that word the way maybe you're familiar with Roman Catholics who use that word. Uh, in, in the Roman Catholic church, the, the word saint refers basically to a Christian who is better than everybody else. Got into heaven quicker and has a little bit of extra pull. Yeah, A, that's not true, and B, that's not what he's talking about. No, no, the word simply means to be set apart. Those who have been set apart 
to and for God. And, and Paul's applying it to the whole church. Now, he calls these, these secular judges, you see there in verse 1, he calls them the unrighteous. I don't, I don't think he's accusing them of anything in particular here, though it, it's well known that the Roman courts were quite corrupt, and it was very typical to, to buy the verdict that you wanted. If you had enough money, you could get the justice you wanted. But, but I don't think that's actually specifically what he's pointing to here. He's, he's not accusing them of something in particular. He's, he's drawing a contrast, a contrast between the identity of unbelievers, they're the unrighteous, and the identity of Christians who are the saints. Unbelievers are those who stand under God's condemnation as unrighteous. Believers, by contrast, are those who stand under God's approval. They are saints. They've been set apart by God, for God, to God, as His special, holy people. And Paul is highlighting the contrast between those two identities. And and he finds the idea that those who have God's approval would go to those who stand under God's judgment in order to resolve their internal personal disputes. He thinks this is absolutely ridiculous. And he is shocked and scandalized by it. He actually offers two reasons for why it would be so ridiculous to take a brother or sister to court. And and both of these reasons are worded in the form of of questions that they know the answer to. He words them in such a way that, that he knows that the answer would be yes. He says, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Verse two, well, of course they know that. He taught them that. And, and, and don't you know that we will judge angels? There in verse 3, of course they know that. He taught them that. Now, I know you a little bit, and I know you would love for me to now explain what that, that's all about. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Um, and I'm not sure anybody does. Uh, it, th- this idea that the, that the saints will rule and will be part of final judgment is mentioned several places in the New Testament. It's never explained in great detail. I take it as a fact, as a truth, that that in some way or another, we who are in Christ will actually sit on the throne with Christ and be a part of both judging at the end and ruling going forward. And that's about as much as I can say about it. And it's about as much as Paul says about it, because that's not really his point. He's not trying to get into all the the details of what that judging and ruling is going to look like. No, he's he's making an argument from the greater to the lesser. This is really what he wants to talk about. He doesn't want to talk about what's going to happen on the last day. He wants to talk about what's happening right now. He says, look, if if, if you're going to sit in judgment over the world someday, if, if you as believers are actually going to judge and rule over angels, then surely you should be able to figure out the comparatively trivial cases of the matters of this life. That's what he says there in verses 2 and 3. If the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we'll judge angels how much more matters of this life? 
Christian, our identity is rooted in the future. Our, our, our understanding of who we are should, should be very much determined by, by the future that God has pronounced over us and promised to us. Now, now often we're accused of being so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. But I just want to point out here, Paul is pointing out that no, it is because you are so heavenly minded that you know what to do in this life. We're not going to know how to live in this life, how to live in a way that commends the gospel, how to live in a way that, that, that proclaims forth the truth of Jesus Christ, unless we are really clear in our heads, my identity is not finally determined by today's circumstances. My identity is not finally determined by my lot in this life. My identity is rooted in the future. It is established by God in Christ. And that makes all the difference for today. My, my, my identity isn't found in today. Oh, but I know how to live today because I know who I am. I know who we are. And Paul points out here, we are those who are going to rule the world someday, who are going to judge even the angels. And that makes a difference for what you do now. Now, now, I would say to you, and I'm sure kind of what he's saying to them, you should be thinking about the future more. You should be setting your mind on the future, not, not to escape into the future, but, but so, so you'll know how to live now. But, but they're not doing that. That They are appointing as their judges, verse 4, people who have no standing in the church. That, that word that he uses there in verse 4, those who have no standing in the church, it's a pretty harsh word. It, it, it means to have no worth, to, to be something that is like beneath contempt. Now, I don't think that Paul is, in a, in a theological way, denying the dignity and humanity of non-Christians. I don't think that's his point here. Once again, he's trying to make the contrast as stark as possible. And, and he's emphasizing how ridiculous this whole situation is. He, he goes on to say it there in verse 5, I say this to your shame. He is trying to shame them about their behavior. You know, back in chapters 1 and 2, if you can think back that long when we were looking at those, Paul really went after them about their claims to wisdom. The Corinthian church thought they were so wise. And now he mocks that claim. And he just points to their behavior. Surely, surely you're wise enough to have someone in the church who can settle a dispute, who can arbitrate between fellow believers. Surely, you're, you're so wise. Surely there's somebody there that can do this. Apparently not. And so you go to court against each other. Verse 6, brother against brother in front of unbelievers. Brothers and sisters, to be a saint, and that's what you are if you are saved, to be a saint is to have access to the wisdom of God. Paul, 
Paul has already said, right, that, that we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. What, what is this wisdom that we've been given? Well, it is the upside-down wisdom of the gospel. The upside-down wisdom of Christ crucified. Paul doesn't work it all out in detail here. For example, he, he doesn't tell us at all what to do if the dispute that we have is with somebody outside the church, with an unbeliever. He didn't talk about that here, so I'm, I'm not. I think there are some other passages. I think Jesus has some things to say about that, about turning the other cheek. But, but that's not what Paul has in view here. And, and I've already mentioned that he doesn't have criminal matters in view. But he does think that we have enough wisdom in the gospel to know how to resolve disputes amongst us. So, so how does our status as saints give us the ability to actually resolve disputes? I want to point out three ways that I think we see right here in his passage. First, let's start where Paul starts. We're going to judge the world and even angels someday. That has huge implications, right? My hope, if I'm going to judge the world someday, if, if I'm going to be reigning with Christ over the new creation someday, that means that my hope is not in securing all of my rights in this life today. My hope is not in getting all that's coming to me in the here and now. And so whatever dispute that I might have, well, it all gets put into perspective, doesn't it? It becomes much smaller. Something that feels very ultimate, all of a sudden I'm reminded, oh, it's not ultimate. It's not ultimate at all. As a saint, I'm going to rule the world with Christ. So I don't have to make this issue, whatever it is, bigger than it needs to be. We are, or at least we should be, the people who can say, it's just money, and mean it. Actually believe it. All right. So, so knowing my future status makes the disputes that I have smaller today. Second, because of the gospel, we actually relate to each other as family, not as competitors. Did, did you notice twice there in verses 5 and 6? And we'll see it again in verse 8. So three times in this whole section, Paul emphasizes our fellowship with one another, our, our, our common family identity as brothers and sisters. I don't think that's an accident that he pulls this language in right here. He's, he's drawing on something in us. Can you imagine taking your own sibling to court? Now, I'm not saying it never happens. I, I think some people even in this room have been in that situation or come very close to it. But, but I know those people and I know how devastating it was. Right, Everything in you, even if you don't have a great relationship with your brother or sister, your, your natural sibling, I mean, everything in you is going to want to try to figure something out first. 
before you land in a courtroom. Natural love would compel us. Well, Paul's saying it should be no different in the church. These people that you relate to week in and week out every Sunday, they're, they're, they're not just other people. They're certainly not competitors. They're your brother, your sister. And love should compel you to try to want deeply to work out whatever the dispute is. I think third here, we see that the gospel gives us the ability to arbitrate. That's the word he uses there in in verse uh, verse 5, the ability to arbitrate between fellow believers. I think the gospel gives us the ability to arbitrate and to gladly accept the results of that arbitration. You know, of, of all people, we should be the people who do not show favoritism, who do not show partiality, because we know that we all stand equally condemned before God, and we all stand equally saved by God. James talks about this in James chapter 2, verse, the, verses 1 and following. You can read about this later. James really presses this on the church there in Jerusalem that he's writing to. We should not show favoritism. Now, now it would be very easy in the church to think, well, I mean, you know, the people that give more to the church, the church is going to take their side. You know, the leaders in the church, the church is going to take their side. We, of course, should be the people where that's not true. We we don't show partiality. We don't show favoritism because we all stand equal before and under the cross. So, So we should be able to arbitrate, but, but we should also be able to accept the church's decision. And why is that? Well, it's because my vindication in this life is not finally in winning every argument. My, my, my vindication is not in coming out on top in every dispute. I can accept the judgment of fellow believers in in a dispute that I might have, even if I think it's a flawed judgment. Because there is nothing that you can say about me, not a single thing you can say about me that hasn't already been said at the cross and dealt with there. In fact, the worst things you could say about me are not as bad as the things that have already been said about me at the cross and already dealt with there. My vindication is in the cross, and so I can submit to the church's judgment. I can submit to the arbitration of my fellow believers, even if I think they get it wrong, because my vindication isn't in you. It's in the Lord. So the gospel, I think, gives us at least that he points out here, at least three ways in which in the wisdom of the gospel, right, we can work out these kinds of disputes. But it's not just that the gospel gives us the ability to resolve disputes in wisdom. It also gives us the motivation 
Three times in these verses, Paul points out the scandal of taking these matters before unbelievers. He points it out in verse 1. How dare you take it to court before the unrighteous? He does it again in in verse 4. So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? And then he does it again in verse 6. Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. Paul's really concerned about this. But I don't think his concern is that unbelievers will give an unjust judgment. He doesn't say that even once. He doesn't even hint at that. His concern isn't that you won't get justice in the secular courts. No, his concern is the disrepute that this brings upon the church. And and don't, don't misunderstand the disrepute he's thinking of. He's not saying, don't take it to unbelievers because we don't want them to see our dirty laundry. He's saying, no, don't take it to unbelievers because unbelievers need to see that we can handle it better than they would. We have the resources in the church to deal with disputes even better than what they would. Friends, our reputation matters as a church because the gospel matters. We claim to be saints. We we claim to be people who've been changed by the gospel. But if we show up in court or our boss's office or any other place where we go looking for judgment outside, if we show up in court grasping after our rights like everyone else, how are we any different? Saints live like they're saved because they demonstrate the wisdom of the gospel, a wisdom that enables us and that motivates us to resolve matters, to to, to reconcile with each other. And I don't think this is finally just about civil suits, but this is what Paul has in view directly. In our church covenant, we promise, we read this just last week, to bear patiently with one another diligently pursuing biblical reconciliation. I'm just going to testify personally, this is hard. Every time we confess that in our church covenant, I think that might be the hardest thing we promise to do toward each other. This was thrust on me almost immediately when I got here at Henson 12 years ago. Uh, There was a, a staff member who felt like he, he didn't like the way his job was working out. And we worked hard uh, to, to resolve the disagreement. The elders were deeply involved. But in the end, he was not satisfied, and, and he left. He resigned and left the church. And he left badly. He left in such a way that a whole bunch of other people now in the church felt like they had been wrong that they had been deprived of somebody that they loved, somebody that they really appreciated. And the start of my second year here, I had to spend a lot of time sitting down, talking with members of this church, hearing from them how they felt they had been wronged in this situation, how upset they were that this internal kind of staff dispute hadn't been worked out. 
the, the chairman of the elders at the time, Bill Fransky, and I sat down, and we had a series of meetings with different groups in the church that were affected by this. And I'll just be honest. I, I would have been happy to be anywhere else in the world than in those rooms when, when those meetings were happening. They were painful. They were difficult. I tried to be as honest as I could. Bill tried to be as honest as he could about what had happened, what we had tried to do to prevent it from happening, why it happened anyway. It was hard. It was humbling. Not everybody was satisfied. Some people left anyway. But, but many, and some of you are sitting in this room, would come to me later and point to those meetings, those difficult conversations, and say, that was what kind of turned the tide for you. That's what convinced you to stay and that it was worth it to stay. It's hard. It was hard for me. It was hard for them. And this isn't just something that happened 12 years ago. I don't know if it's me. It's probably me. But it might also just be like an occupational hazard. Being a pastor means you're going to say and do things that people aren't going to like. And so even today, I can think of probably a couple or three families here in the church who are unhappy with me for one reason or another. And it's hard right now. And I can, I can tell you that there are efforts to work through it. Uh, I don't think it'll be easy. Because I don't know that it's a clear like, oh, that's sin and you just need to repent of it. No, there are more nuanced issues than that. There are issues of disagreement, of dispute. And it's really, really hard. It's hard for me, and it's hard for them. But I know on my part, and I know on their part, that there is a commitment to doing the hard work, to resolve the disagreement best we can, because that's not an idle promise that we make to each other in that church covenant. We are saints. We are saints. People who demonstrate the wisdom of Christ crucified. And that wisdom is sufficient, no matter how hard the situation is. If that's true for me, your pastor, and I've tried to be appropriately vulnerable, it's true for you too. I don't know what the disputes are in your life. I don't know where the broken relationships are. But I want to assure you that the gospel is sufficient. It doesn't mean that the conversation that you need to have will be easy it probably won't be. But you are a saint. 
Your identity is grounded in the future. And so you know how to live today. And you have all that you need to walk into that hard conversation. Saints live like they're saved because they demonstrate the wisdom of the gospel. But it's not just the wisdom of the gospel that saints demonstrate. I want us to notice that second, saints demonstrate love. They demonstrate the love of the gospel. This is the the second thing that I want us to think about. So look at verse seven with me. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul points out in this section that that in taking each other to court, we're we're already defeated, verse 7. You're already defeated. Why do you go to court? You go to court to win. But but spiritually, Paul's pointing out that both the plaintiff and the defendant have already lost. In, In fact, the whole church has already lost. The church has lost in the court of public opinion, as we were just thinking about. The litigants are in danger of losing at the court of heaven. What should they have done instead? Well, they should have been willing to love one another, love one another sacrificially, love one another in the love of the gospel. Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions again. You can tell he really likes questions. He's using them a lot in this section. And he asks these these rhetorical questions in verse 7. Once again, he already knows what the answer is, and he knows they know what the answer is. And the answer is yes. Yes, of course, of course, you should rather be wronged than take a brother to court. Yes, of course, of course, you should rather be cheated than take a brother to court. Wait, 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 wait. You, you mean financially cheated? You, you mean I should be willing to let someone walk away with my money, money that I'm owed? Yes. That is what Paul is saying. You should be willing, if you are a saint, to lay down your rights and to lay them down for the sake of your brother to lay them down for the sake of the church. Of course, that's not what they're doing. Instead, verse 8, he says, you wrong and cheat your brother. That's kind of a shocking thing to say to Americans, that you should be willing to let somebody take your money rather than take them to court, if they are a brother or sister. 
That, that's like religion getting nosy. Religion getting up into my business in ways that I'm not accustomed to getting up into it. It doesn't at all seem obvious to us. But it seems really obvious to Paul. Why is it so obvious to Paul that it'd be better to be wronged than to do wrong by suing your brother in Christ? Well, well he, again, he gives us two reasons. He starts with the negative. And, and once again, he asks a question that they should know the answer to. Verse 9 Don't you know that the unrighteous, and let me stop there, that word there, the unrighteous, that's the noun form of the verb that he used in the previous verse, the the do wrong. So so we could could say, verse 8, instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit God's kingdom? He says, don't kid yourselves. Don't don't try to rationalize your behavior under under the banner of justice. We've seen this list before. Uh, He expands it here. We saw it in in chapter 5. He he picks up that same list, and he expands it here in in verses uh, 9 and 10. The sexually immoral of every kind. Gay straight, married, single. He uses a variety of words that covers the entire waterfront. The religiously immoral, idolaters. The the financially immoral, thieves, swindlers. And if he'd stop there, we'd probably feel okay because I don't think I've robbed anybody lately and I haven't tried to swindle anybody out of anything lately. But then he adds greedy. And oh, that one hurts. The drunkard, the verbally abusive. Paul says that people who are characterized by these things, that this describes their life, not just a one-time action, this describes their life. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the thing that you need to be really clear on here, it's why I pointed out the connection between the verb wrongdoers and the noun, the, 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 the disobedient or the, the unrighteous, doing wrong and wrongdoers, that connection, verses 8 and 9. Paul is deliberately putting that act, the act of suing somebody, the act of refusing to reconcile, he's putting it into this list. So the threat of judgment should motivate us. But it's not just the threat of judgment that makes this really obvious to Paul. It's really the fact that they've already been loved by God in the very way that he is calling them to love one another sacrificially. You know, having warned them, Paul points out There in verse 11, some of you used to be like this. That that, that list that I just gave you, that that described people that are not going to be in the kingdom of God, that are not saints, that's some of you. You used to be like this. Adulterers, homosexuals, 
idolaters, swindlers, drunkards. Used to be this way. But not anymore, says Paul. Not anymore. Just as Paul told them not to tolerate sin because they had been made a holy batch, a holy people, now he's telling them, don't, don't treat each other sinfully because you have been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. This is why it's really obvious to Paul that, of course, you'd rather be wronged than take somebody to court. Of course, you'd rather be cheated than take somebody to court. Because you yourselves have been loved in the very way he's asking you to love. Friends, the bad news is that the kind of behavior that Paul talks about here, of which all of us are guilty in at least some points, all of that behavior deserves God's judgment. We are in more trouble than we realize. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ was willing to give up his rights for us. He was willing to be wrongfully condemned. He, he was willing to be cheated of his very life on the cross. He didn't deserve to die. He'd done nothing wrong. There was nothing just from a human perspective about the cross. But he laid down his rights. And so he laid down his life as a sacrifice, as a substitute for people like us who deserve to die that very death. He paid our penalty, the sentence of death, so that we might go free, so that we might be forgiven our debt to God. If we will repent of our sins and put our faith in him, what I just explained, friends, is the gospel. And, and if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, this is what we want you to understand. Not that you need to, to gin up enough like good works so that God will accept you, but that God has already done all the work. That, he, that he's already suffered for you in the person of Christ. That he's already taken the penalty that you deserve and he's paid it in full. And does it sound like that that's just? No. It sounds like that's grace. A gift to you if you will receive it in repentance and in faith. I'd love to talk to you more about that. There's nothing more important for you to understand as we approach Christmas than to understand why Jesus was born. He was born so that he could die for sinners like you and me. And if, he, if you will have him, he died for you. Come, come find me after the service and talk to me about this or talk to the person that you came with. But don't leave without understanding just how good the good news of the gospel is for you. Now, now Christian, because of what Christ did for you, Paul, Paul points out, you are a saint. You have been washed clean of your sin, which is symbolized in baptism. You have been sanctified. You're, you're set apart for God. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You, you belong to him. You have been justified, declared not guilty. 
And, and what that means is that it is this sacrificial love that now empowers yours. And nowhere does that matter more than where it's hardest, where, where it's really difficult, where you feel you've been wronged by a brother or a sister. Have, have you maybe tried to reconcile? If you've tried to reconcile, and that reconciliation still hasn't happened. Are you willing to lay down your rights and love and forgive anyway? The gospel doesn't matter at the hardest places. It doesn't matter at all. Years ago, a member of this church began a process of litigation against another member. It was over a financial matter. The elders got involved to try to help resolve the dispute. It wasn't clear sin on either part. It was a contractual matter. It was a dispute. After a lot of effort on a part of several elders, the, the other party, one of the parties, just refused to be satisfied. They couldn't get over the fact that they just felt they'd been wronged. And there was a lot of fear about the money. Finally, I got involved. And I asked this person, who I knew well and was actually kind of close to, I said, I said look, how, mu how much money are you out? And they told me. And I said, look, I want to pay it. Let, let, let me pay you back that money that you feel you're out. And the response was like shock and outrage. No, no, you can't do that. You're not the one who did it. It would be wrong of you to pay it back. I replied, if you are not in a position to be wronged, and I understand that, maybe you're not. Maybe you simply can't afford this. If you are not in a position to be wronged, then let me be wronged for you. Let your pastor be wronged for you. I will happily do this, and I can do it. They refused. They refused. And it was, that, it was at that moment, and it was a shocking moment, I realized that despite how sweet this person was, this person didn't understand the gospel. Their heart had been captured by the money and by the fear. And ultimately, that person left the church. Christian, what's ruling your heart? What do you love most? If it's the gospel, then you will be willing to be wronged 
for the sake of the gospel. You will be willing to be cheated for the sake of the gospel. But if it's something else, then when the gospel and that something else come into conflict, you will choose that something else. And that is a perilous place to be. Christian, we love one another. We love one another sacrificially because we know that's how we have been loved. We can be wronged in this life because we know that there is a day of judgment coming in which all things will be set right, and I can await that day. We can be cheated in this life because we really can't say it's just money and I have gained something way more valuable. I've inherited the kingdom of God. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. We've been given a new identity in an instant. We are saints. For the sake of the watching world, for the sake of our own souls. We are called to live in the wisdom and in the love of the gospel. Saints live like they are saved. You know why? Because they are. Be who you are. And the world will know that the gospel is true. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and think about those ways in which perhaps your heart is divided. where you wouldn't be willing to be wronged or cheated for the sake of the gospel, and just confess that to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we confess that almost every day we are tempted to love our money more than you. We're tempted to love our pride more than you. Lord, we pray that we would see the depth of the riches of the gospel. That, that it wouldn't just be a, a Christmas carol that we sing about you who are rich becoming poor for us, know that we would understand that to the very depths of our being and that we would live in that truth that because we have been loved, we can love even in ways that are hard. Lord, we pray that you would rule in our hearts today 
in such a way that, that we show that we indeed have been made into people who will rule someday. Rule in the love and in the wisdom of Christ our Savior. And we pray this in his name. Amen.